0: Welcome to episode 39 of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joy Brannan. And as we've been doing for the last two weeks, this week we're going to get into chapter three of the book that I wrote last year called Grow With Purpose. This chapter is on effective leadership in small business, something we see a lot, uh, talk about a lot, work with clients about uh, constantly. So I um, hope you enjoy the chapter. I'll come back afterwards and we'll break it down a little bit. Chapter three, effective leadership in a small business. Steve opened his first self-storage facility over 40 years ago. Today, he has 20 locations and plans to open another 20 within the next 10 years. He recently closed a deal that will enable his company to expand into the next two generations. Beyond his business accomplishments, Steve takes time to mentor younger men in leadership and discipleship. He plays a leading role in his church. He reads voraciously. He prioritizes a few deep, decades-long friendships. And perhaps most important, he models a thriving, long-lasting marriage for his children and grandchildren. At 72 years old, he shows no signs of slowing down. Over the years, Steve has grown as a business leader without making irrevocable sacrifices in the most important areas of his life. That's not to say there haven't been challenges or serious bumps along the way. But unlike many business owners his age with a similar list of professional accomplishments, Steve does not have to look back over the last 40 years and count the casualties he's racked up along the way. What makes individuals like Steve successful is their capacity to lead. They do not constrain leadership to a single area or competency. It overflows into every area of life. Contrary to the contemporary tendency to define leadership in terms of business success, spiritual maturity, social influence, athletic prowess, or exemplary character, I want to argue in this chapter that great leadership is not isolated to specific areas of life. Effective leadership is all-encompassing, and it has distinctive traits we can identify and use to assess our own leadership capacity. But before we get there, let's understand why leadership is so important. No matter what you're doing, great accomplishment requires great leadership. If you are leading a family, you must embrace the realization that the family's success cannot be dependent on your efforts alone. If you coach a high school football team, you can't win a state championship by putting on pads and taking the field by yourself. Similarly, if you own a business and want to grow up beyond your own abilities to sell and do the work, you must rely on the efforts of others. It will be your capacity to lead them that will determine how far all of you will go together. Without leadership, you will be limited in the scale of what you can accomplish. No matter what we do in life, our ability to do more than we could by ourselves hinges on our ability to lead others. Yet somehow, we have managed to perpetuate a false notion that someone can lead in one area of life and be totally inept at leading in other areas. How many times have we seen politicians caught up in a sex scandal argue that their personal life has nothing to do with their political responsibilities? It is as if integrity had no place in evaluating their capacity to represent constituents. How many times have we witnessed business owners breaking through new revenue goals while their marriage and home life crumble? Leadership follows us wherever we go. We are either good leaders or we are not. Failures of leadership in one area of our life inevitably act as precursors to future failures in other areas. Leaders like Steve are able to realize business success without making irrevocable personal sacrifices precisely because they do not draw a distinction between personal leadership and professional leadership. I want to address what I consider to be five traits of effective leaders. I want to address what I consider to be five traits of effective leadership. Number one, great leaders are servants first. Number two, great leaders accept responsibility. Number three, great leaders are accountable to those they lead. Number four, great leaders are consistent. And number five, great leaders are coachable. Great leaders are servants first. In his book, Leadership is an Art, Max Dupree says, The first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, the leader is a servant. In those three sentences, Dupree breaks down leadership into three nice, discrete components. When leaders define reality, they are engaging in strategic planning, policy setting, and emphasizing values. That is all defining reality. It is a leader's responsibility to say thank you that enables leaders to amass a following. Leaders who are not humble and grateful endure constant turnover on their team. They must pay higher-than-market wages just to get people to show up for work. They complain about not being able to find good people. They arrogantly believe that those around them should just be thankful for the opportunity. And they don't understand why their culture is toxic to both employees and customers. Leaders who do say thank you are at the opposite end of the spectrum. They enjoy higher loyalty, better recruiting, and an infectious attitude that yields five-star customer reviews. But it's the middle part. Dupree's statement that the leader is a servant that tells us what good leaders do most of the time. It is being a servant that makes the difference between great leaders and those who merely possess authority. After they have done the hard work of defining reality by setting a worthy vision, these leaders are able to entrust the day-to-day working out of that vision to the team. At that point, they show up every day and ask the question, what does my team need from me to be successful in their work? This is what service looks like. The problem is that most leaders do not define a vision for the team, or they define one that is not worthy of the team's best effort. Without ownership of the vision, employees are just work units to be deployed by the leader in whatever manner seems best at the time. They are pawns on the chessboard of the leader's making, and they require constant, vigilant attention and monitoring. The pieces, in and of themselves, are capable of little more than holding their place on the board. This kind of leadership is exhausting. It leads to frustrated business owners who can never find good people and who believe motivations like money and status matter most to employees. Servant leadership is a popular ideal, but it usually falls apart because owners have not done the hard work of defining reality first. They have no compelling vision. They cannot articulate a shared set of values, and no one knows the mission. These leaders may sincerely desire to serve their people, but without any clear path toward the future, their employees honestly don't know what they need from their leader to be successful. First, define reality in terms of value, vision, and mission. We discuss how to go about doing this in chapters 1 and 2. Then, serve with an attitude of humility. And don't be shy about expressing gratitude for the time and effort that people expend on your behalf. This is the foundation of great leadership in small business, in politics, in large enterprises, in social institutions, in community organizations, in education, in professional sports. It is universal. Great leaders accept responsibility. For all of our talk about what good leadership looks like, there is one surefire way to spot poor leadership. Poor leaders always get hung up on who is at fault. They view accountability as getting to the root of the problem by identifying the culprits and bringing down the hammer. Good leaders, by contrast, understand that they are responsible for everything that happens on their watch. In so doing, they free themselves and those who work for them from the stigma associated with fault. By accepting responsibility, they take a huge burden off their managers and employees. This pays off in a lot of ways, One of which is that the people who do the work every day are not constantly looking over their shoulders. They can actually focus on the task at hand. Good leaders understand that fault is a dead-end road that will not lead to a solution or any type of personal development. It won't help the leader, it won't help the employee get any better, and it won't fix the problem. Some self-deprecating leaders believe it's admirable to accept fault for everything, but eventually... They drive themselves into the ground and turn into beaten people no one wants to follow. Other leaders find fault with everyone but themselves and wind up creating a defensive culture. In both cases, the person who suffered as a result of the mistake, the customer, a fellow team member, an upset vendor, that person is left sitting on the sidelines wondering, who is going to fix my problem? My experience is that they usually end up fixing it themselves, sometimes by going somewhere else, sometimes by just going around the blame game and ignoring it. Either way, the relationship is damaged and no one wins. How much better would it be if the leader, rather than assigning blame, accepted responsibility and freed up those who made the mistake to review the situation and understand exactly what went wrong without any fear of consequence? Having done that, they would then be in a place to fix the situation and make it right. In accepting responsibility, these leaders take the heat and create space for their employee to not only learn from what happened, but to come up with creative solutions to fix the problem. People describe leaders who are willing to accept responsibility as unflappable, composed, self-assured, secure, and dignified. By contrast, Those who place the blame are characterized as frantic, manic, insecure, unprofessional, and distracting. Rather than take the pressure off their people, they turn up the heat and make finding a solution nearly impossible. Someone told me once that if a baby is left on your doorstep, it is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. In his excellent book, Boundaries for Leaders, Dr. Henry Cloud recounts a story with one of his coaching clients. The CEO was complaining about his terrible company culture. As Cloud challenged him to just build the culture he desired, the CEO stumbled to come up with a reason he couldn't do that. Eventually, he said, You know, when you think about it, I am ridiculously in charge. Cloud's insight that whatever exists in your business is there either because you built it or you allowed it to be built is at the root of accepting responsibility. In Cloud's example, this applies to culture, but it is equally applicable in every area of your business. Failure to accept responsibility is simply an acknowledgement that you are not the leader your business needs. As a practical tip, I counsel my business owner clients to stop interrogating people who have made mistakes with questions like, why did you do that? Even worse is the question, what were you thinking? These are blame shifting questions. It doesn't really matter why they did it, or what they were thinking. In hindsight, we know that whatever they were thinking, or whatever their motivations were, those things were clearly wrong. Getting them to say they were wrong one more time in painful detail only grinds them into the dirt even more. It is much better to ask, what happened? What did we expect to happen? Where did we go wrong? What can we do to fix it? And how likely is it that this will happen again? The posture of these questions is one of service. Help your people understand. Don't force them to accept blame. This requires that you take responsibility for everything that happens on your watch. In doing so, you will create space for your people to thrive. Great leaders are accountable. The idea that the boss is accountable to the people who report to him seems unconventional, but we need to go back to the start. What is your vision for the business? The people who work for you don't work for the paycheck. They don't work for the benefits. They don't work for the fancy Herman Miller chair you bought them last year, or the dual screen monitors you put on their desk. They can get those things, and probably more, working for someone else. Silicon Valley is full of employees with inflated compensation packages, crazy perks, and more amenities than you or I will ever be able to deliver To our own employees. And despite all that, those employees routinely leave to chase a dream at some new startup with a vision to change the world in a new way. They aren't doing it for the money. The people who work for you are volunteers. What will keep them with you is the worthy vision that you have invited them to help achieve. Therefore, If your vision is the reason they have volunteered their talents, enthusiasm, and best efforts, you too must be accountable to that vision. Otherwise, they will revolt. They will leave. They will fail to put in their best effort. They will withdraw their motivation, energy, and enthusiasm. You must act in a manner consistent with your vision if you expect them to help you get there. It is hard to overestimate the importance of vision in creating a thriving business. When you fail to consistently pursue your vision, you owe your team an apology. You have let them down. Most business owners think charisma is more important to leadership than accountability. In their view, the dynamic, polished, enthusiastic business owner is the one people want to follow. But charisma and the absence of accountability is dangerous. Cult leaders and crooked evangelists have loads of charisma and zero accountability. When they espouse a vision, it is self-serving and not worthy of the team's best effort. For these leaders, the vision is just a prop while they rely on their charisma to hold people in the group. Accountability to a vision may seem warm and fuzzy, but like everything else we have talked about, it has practical consequences. Steve is a fellow CPA and a friend of mine who works with business owners on strategic growth and leadership. I was coaching Steve through a consulting project with one of his clients where he had to go out and interview several of the client's employees. After these interviews, Steve discovered there was one universal sore spot in the company. The owner of the business was an avid boater, and it seemed like he bought a bigger and bigger boat each year. The problem was that he parked his boat at the business, so every truck driver and technician drove by that boat twice a day. Do you think those employees were reminding themselves of the company's shared vision? Do you think they viewed their leader as accountable to something bigger than himself? Do you think they respected him? Steve learned firsthand from the employees that the owner's toys were one of the biggest culture killers in the business. I am not saying that business owners who work hard, take risks, and make sacrifices should not enjoy nice things. What I am saying is that business owners who don't make accountability to a vision a personal standard cannot expect others to view their toys with the same sense of appreciation and gratitude. Even worse, business owners whose vision is the acquisition of bigger toys create a toxic culture. The best leaders articulate a vision worthy of their team's best efforts and make themselves accountable to both the vision and the team. Great leaders are consistent. I once knew a guy, we will call him Tom, who exhibited every appearance of professionalism and success. He was in charge of a multi-million dollar organization. He was well-respected among his peers in the industry. He surrounded himself with notable and accomplished people in the community. But a friend of mine is a school principal where Tom's kids go to school, and he told me about a different side to Tom. Earlier that week, Tom had been to the principal's office ranting and raving about the inadequacies of our school system, the incompetence of his daughter's teacher, the questionable credentials of the guidance staff, and the school's lackluster performance on standardized testing. Tom went on to demand that his children be given preferential treatment. He backed up his demand with threats and claimed he knew school board members who could fire the principal with just one phone call from him. A few months later... I was sitting in the office of an attorney whom I'd never met before, and during casual conversation, he discovered that I knew Tom. He told a story about Tom's antics at the recreational soccer field, where Tom was known to belittle referees, second-guess coaches, and make enemies of other parents. When I heard these stories, it was hard to square them with Tom's business success. Revenues were growing, they were hiring people left and right, and their influence in the community seemed to be expanding. I wondered how Tom could lead this business to success in spite of the obvious flaws I was hearing about. Had Tom simply been in the right place at the right time? He didn't start the business. He had been recruited and brought in as a successor. I wondered if he might be riding the coattails of his predecessor. I just could not imagine how anyone like the guy in these stories could be a good business leader. Fast forward a few years. Tom's business went stagnant. Turnover among leadership and frontline employees grew to historically levels. Morale became non-existent. Eventually, I was invited to take a look at the financial statements and give my opinion on the company's prospects. I saw decreasing revenue, declining cash balances, declining customer retention, and worsening overall financial health. Not long after that, Tom and his wife were divorced. His adult kids distanced themselves from him and those closest to him started saying he was not the man they thought they once knew. Great leaders are different. They take stock of every area of their life. They look for places where their leadership is lacking and needs improvement. They do not draw arbitrary lines between work and home, leisure and vocation. Like the proverbial canary in the coal mine These leaders view small personal failings as pointers to areas needing improvement. I have seen several examples of this when working with business owners. A lack of empathy at work may not cause big problems right away, but outside the office it will affect relationships much faster. Miles was often heard to utter the phrase, it's just business. He embodied the idea that it is okay to separate emotion from the workplace, but at home, That same lack of empathy was killing his marriage and his relationship with his two teenage boys. To this day, Miles struggles to retain young talent among a generation that really cares if their work makes a difference. Another example centers on greed versus gratitude. An unwillingness to give in one's personal life, whether that be at the offering plate on Sunday morning or at the next-door neighbor's fundraiser, may highlight a greed or acquisitiveness that is also showing up at work. Everyone knew that Justin was a ruthless negotiator, personally responsible for sealing some of the biggest contracts in his company. But they also avoided him whenever there was a collection for a sick employee or a community service project. In the office, a poor leader will try to justify this behavior as good stewardship or sound capitalism, but it is unhealthy and your team will notice when it shows up through unnecessarily harsh negotiations over pay or stinginess that keeps you from investing in the long-term health of the business. Perhaps the biggest area I see leadership inconsistency play out with business clients is in the marriage relationship. Far from being disconnected from the business, this most critical relationship gives me a glimpse into what makes my client tick and the areas they need to work on. A marriage is unique in that it provides both the opportunity to lead and the opportunity to be led. Great marriages are characterized by submission to one another. This submission is rooted in a shared vision of what the healthy marriage should be, not unlike the worthy vision of what a business should be. A husband or wife who cannot be led by their spouse will not be able to put down their ego to serve others first nor will they be able to hire people better and brighter than themselves as the business grows. Dan and Sherry are a husband and wife client team who exemplify submission to one another. I've seen them lay aside ego and put the business and its team members first on many occasions. If you want to be a better boss, commit to be a better spouse first. If you can get that right, everything at work will seem like a cakewalk. The main point is you should be the same person everywhere. A good leader is always trying to become better, even when no one is watching, and especially outside the office. Great leaders are coachable. Being coachable requires the humility to admit that someone else knows more than you do, even if they are not your equal on the playing field. We see this every day in professional sports. The coaches cannot perform the feats of athleticism and stamina that seem routine to the athletes on the field, yet those athletes will defer to their coaches as having greater insight and understanding of the game. They defer to the coach even though they could destroy him in a game of one-on-one. Do you believe that your wife, your pastor, your best friend, your mentor, your kids, or even perfect strangers can observe things about you that you can't see yourself? Do you think those things are relevant to your ability to grow as a leader and a business owner? Coachable leaders appreciate those with the insight and courage to reveal their blind spots. This kind of humility is not easy to exercise. It requires a drive and ambition to get better. When that drive supersedes your desire to be perceived as someone who has it all together, you will become coachable. You will ask people to critique your performance and give you honest feedback. Are you able to step out of your comfort zone and seek out or listen to critical advice? Or is it simply not worth the discomfort? Great leaders endure discomfort because their motivation to get better overrides their ego. But being coachable isn't just about taking counsel from others. At some point, great leaders must also coach themselves by looking introspectively at their life and critiquing their own performance and then having the grit and determination to go off and work on things by themselves. The best athletes know that the practice field is not the only place they have to put in the work. The coach may offer periodic critiques, but he's not in your face all the time. The best players stay after practice, after the coach has gone home, and there's no one left to see them put in the work. Do you spend time alone in quiet introspection and self-review? Do you hold yourself accountable to consistent standards in both your business and your personal life? Do you read and study on your own to get better? Do you journal and take stock of what is happening in your life and how you respond to it? Are you able to distance yourself from the emotion of poor performance while you critique your work and put in the extra effort to get better? Good leaders do all of these things. They are coachable. When someone shows up in their life willing to coach, they take full advantage of the opportunity to get better. We started this chapter by looking at a friend of mine, Steve Wilson. Steve and others like him are not perfect, and they don't pretend to be, but Steve is a servant. He is willing to accept responsibility. He is accountable to his team. He is consistent across different areas of his life, and he is coachable. Can you be successful in business while going through your fourth divorce? Can you be considered a good leader if you are estranged from your kids? Can you be a villain on your kid's soccer field and a hero in the boardroom? If we use a yardstick of financial profits and wealth, the answer might be yes, at least in the short term. But eventually, it all shows through. For many of us, poor leaders are the reason we started our own business. We wanted to do it better, without the compromise, without the walls between business and personal, and without the wake of broken and damaged relationships behind us. I think leaders like Steve have it right. Leadership is not a nine-to-five job. Great leaders aspire to serve in a way that leaves people and the things in their life better off than when they found them. Your people deserve a great leader. You were called to be one, and your company will thrive if you answer the call. This is probably my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, I talked earlier about, you know, we we see, we talk about this a lot with clients. We see it in almost every business we work with. It it has this kind of universal appeal and application to it that it's, we talk a lot about the business owner because I really believe you have to lead from the top. And and if you want your people to, to be certain, you know, certain type of leader, you have to exemplify that first. Uh, So it does apply to everybody in the business. And that's one of the reasons that it has this broad application and we run into it so often. But when we're talking about leadership, it does kind of, I think one of the other reasons that it has a broader appeal is that it does, in some sense, stand independent from the first two chapters where we talked about values, vision, why, and mission. And the reason for that is that, you know, a lot of businesses are out there, and they're doing just fine without values, vision, why, and mission. Right? They're, they're, the thing that values, vision, why, and mission brings to the game, the thing that it offers the small business owner, is a structure for growth. And in some sense, it's kind of like a technical recipe. There are lots of non-technical reasons that it works, but the reason that we use it for clients is just its because it works. I mean, its it's the way that you're able to take an organization – and scale it beyond your own abilities. That's the whole purpose of of vision. And the purpose of values is to make sure that the behavior within the organization is consistent. You can deliver a consistent customer experience because everybody values the same things, and you can deliver a consistent employee experience and continue to retain people on your team because you all value the same things. The why is that thing that allows you to build the relationships and deepen those that are going to help you Grow again, grow the business beyond your own efforts, right? so, but in some sense, like you can have a small business that is is not uh, maybe you know through right place at the right time in the market. It has grown but it's struggling because it doesn't have these structures and it's going to be hard for it to grow past that. And then you can also have very well run businesses that just aren't growing. They've kind of settled in and that's one of the situations that we get brought into a lot, which is a business that has just kind of plateaued at a certain revenue mark and the business owners decide they want to start growing again. And so putting those structures in place helps you grow. But I don't want to give the impression that when we walk into every business, we find poor leadership and we have to bang out chapter three and get these people to, to, to grasp these five principles. There are businesses where these things already exist uh, and there, there are businesses where they don't. And if they don't, man, it's, it's hard because we're talking about human behavior and character at its most fundamental level. So, if you have a business owner who who aspires to be a great leader and they've just never been uh, coached and they've never been shown how and it's never been presented to them in a way that they could consistently work on becoming a better leader, uh, that's a great recipe for us, you know, we're, to get somebody who's who's hungry and wants to do that. But if you get into a situation where um, somebody's they're not interested in that. Those are what we call the magic wand scenarios, right? So that's a business owner who expects to throw a bunch of money at us and have us wave a magic wand to make all their problems better in spite of their unwillingness to go to work on themselves and becoming a great leader. Because we can put all these structures in place. We can put values, vision, why, mission in place. Uh, We can train them to talk about it consistently, which is kind of the theme of chapter two, like weave it into the day-to-day areas of the business. We can even go through some of the housekeeping items that we talked about that we're going to talk about in subsequent chapters. But without effective leadership in these five areas, eventually we know that we will disengage from that client because there's only so much progress we can make and, and they're going to be their own worst enemy if they're not coachable then it's going to be very difficult for us to make a lasting mark. So just real quickly, um, you know, if, if you are, let's say that you've been, um, you, you're in a leadership role or you're aspiring to be in a leadership role and, and you are coachable, like you do want to get better. You're reading leadership books and you're, you're trying to, to understand what that looks like and, and how you can become a more effective leader. Uh, what advice would I give you? What, what tips would I give you? Well, this is not, this may not be popular. It may not be, there's more, let me just say, there's more than enough information out there. There are so many great books on leadership. There are so many, uh, you know, great things on YouTube. And, you know, you can listen to these fantastic speakers who are great leaders. Uh, you can read biographies of great leaders. There's no shortage of information. What I see a shortage of is application, like the homework. Where's the homework to make this stuff stick and to actually make a difference in your leadership? And so the homework that I'm going to give you, if you're interested in becoming a better leader, is not necessarily popular. And most of the people are not going to take me up on it. But it is the one place that I will assure you, you'll make the greatest strides in leadership that will then be able to be applied to every area of your life. And we, we can talk about training, but let's let's talk about like the boot camp training. So like if you, if you join the service, like you don't just, you know, get assigned to your unit and... and you start doing a little PT every day, like you go to boot camp and it's brutal and it's physical and it's, it's meant to break you down. And the reason is the lessons you learn there, you will carry with you. So it's kind of like this, there's this need for kind of this intense um, training aspect to reset your, your normal state into this, you know, higher uh, performance level. That's what boot camp's about. That's what like special forces training is about. That's even if you look at sports teams, if you go, you know, if you look at the NFL and they have, um, you know, when camp starts, preseason camp starts every year, it's like two day, three day a week practices. The training regimen is ridiculous. Um, Spring training, the same thing for baseball. So in all these areas where we want top performance, there's kind of a shock to the system. So... That's a, I'm, I'm kind of leading up to this. What is the shock to the system? What is the area of leadership that I want you to really to, to spend your time and homework on? And here it is. Lead at home first. And if you think that that is easy, I will challenge you that it is probably just like the shock to the system of boot camp or or preseason training camp or special forces, you know, but training for the Navy SEALs, because here's the thing: at home, there's there is no there are no breaks. Right, your break is actually when you you leave to go to work. But then you come home, and you you know the weekends you're there, the evenings you're there, the early mornings you're there, and it is a challenge to lead at home. It's a challenge. Number one, I think the biggest reason it's a challenge is because we take our families for granted. Um, it's it's a sad thing, and I've been guilty of it more times than I'd like to admit, of just taking my family for granted. The, the ones who love me the most are the ones who support me the most, but there are definitely times when I, they get the leftovers. And that's not right. As a leader, that's definitely not right. So I would challenge you to lead at home first. And all the, the five different areas that were talked about in Chapter 3 in terms of what, what great leaders do – Like they they serve first, they accept responsibility, they're accountable, they're consistent, and they're coachable. Those five things in the context of family are, are probably some of the best work you can do, not probably, the best work you can do to develop yourself as a leader. So let's talk about serving first. What does it look like for you to serve at home? right? And it's not serve when you're on schedule. It's not serve when you feel like it. It's not serve when it's your turn. It's serve, period. What does it look like for you to consistently walk around your home and ask, well, how can I serve the people in my home? How can I serve my spouse? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my in-laws if they live with you? How can I, how can I serve my neighbors, right? But let's, let's stay inside the four walls first. You know, you walk in. It's been a brutal day. You have you've you've been you know your first appointment started at seven o'clock. Your last one finished at six thirty, and you walk in the door. And service is not on your mind. Being served is on your mind because you're you're hungry. You're worried about dinner. You're worried about you know am I going to get to sit down for a second and catch my breath? But to serve means to walk in the door with a wholly different posture, and to do this well. You may have to pause for 30 or 45 seconds in the driveway and just kind of reset your expectation for what you need to be doing as you walk in the door. So to walk in the door to serve means that your first question is not about what's in it for you with dinner. It means your first question is, how, number one, your spouse. How was how, how your spouse's day? Is there anything that they need right now? How, how are they doing? Is, what areas are... Are they not being served in that you get so if, if they're in the middle of dinner and it's a struggle, can you offer to finish it off? If, they're, if they haven't even thought about dinner, can you make the offer? Let's just all go out to, to eat. Um, if they're worried about getting a kid to practice on time, can you offer to take the kid to practice? That's what it looks like to serve. And I get it. It's tough. But like I said, this is nobody said it was going to be easy. Nobody said being a leader was fair, and that's the, probably one of the biggest misconceptions. Is it fair that as a leader you're held to a higher standard? No, it's not fair. Get over it. Like if you don't, if you want fair, don't sign up for leadership because leadership is one of the most lopsided relationships you will ever enter into. You will always give more. You will always get less. You will always. You should always get less accolades or be willing to hand those accolades off to your team. You will always have to put in more hours. You will always get less thanks and recognition than you deserve. And none of that's fair. But if you, if you want fairness, you probably shouldn't be a leader because it's not fair. It's not fair to walk in after working a 13-hour day and have to keep going for another three or four hours because your family needs you to serve. But that's what you signed up for. If you want to be a leader at home, that's what's required. Responsibility. You know, everything that happens in your home is your responsibility. If you believe that, it changes the way you relate to the people who are in your house. I know our spouses all have faults. I know our kids all screw things up. But to what extent are you willing to say, I could have done something different that may have led them to choose a different path? Now, I'm not saying this cures every ill. Some people, you know, they're gonna they're gonna do their own thing and they're gonna act irresponsibly, even in the face of your responsibility. But I would venture to guess that you know, those codependent dysfunctional relationships are maybe five percent of the time. The other ninety-five percent of the time, we wanna shift blame and say that this was this person's fault rather than accept responsibility. And I think even in those 5% of cases, the 5% developed over years and years and years and years and years of the leader not being willing to accept responsibility, but instead being more interested in who was to blame. So I would encourage you, start to take responsibility for everything that happens under your roof. If you don't have the marriage that you want to have, own the fact that you don't have the marriage, that it's your responsibility, and then you're going to start to do some things to change it. If your kids aren't maturing at the rate you would like them to mature, they're still doing foolish things, accept responsibility and start to understand what it is that you can do to change the course of their life for the better. If your home doesn't look the way that you want it to look, and it's because that part of your life has been delegated to your spouse accept responsibility that maybe you haven't provided the training or the support or the resources or the direction or the encouragement that would allow them to take care of, of that responsibility that's been entrusted to them so responsibility again is it fair no it's not fair if you're inter- we've already established if you're interested in fairness you're probably in the wrong spot are you accountable to your family um, do you do you make sure that they're the first ones to know when there's going to be something that takes you away from the family. Do you clear your plans with them? Are you, uh, do you acknowledge that sometimes you let them down and you're willing for them to, to call you out on it? Are there areas of your life that your kids have, uh, have permission to call you out on? whether that's working out, whether that's drinking too much, whether that's exercising, whether that's the way you talk to your spouse. You know, if you've got kids who are who are middle school, high schoolers, there ought to be some parts of your life that, that they know you're accountable to them and they have permission to call out a- areas of inconsistency when they see them. Are you consistent? You know, consistency is a huge thing. You know, if if you're... If nobody knows when to plan on you being in or out, when nobody knows what kind of mood uh, you may be in, when you create this unstable environment with a lack of consistency, it upsets the entire apple cart in your home. And finally, are you coachable? And I would say the biggest area of coaching in, 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 uh, in the home is your marriage. Do you, does your spouse, when your spouse speaks to you, are you able to receive it so that you can process where you're falling short and where you, can make, where you can make changes. Even more, are you soliciting that coaching advice from your spouse? Are you proactively asking, how did I do on this? What do you think? Where can I get better? Where am I missing the mark? How's my parenting? Am I, am I taking you uh, on enough dates? When I'm with you, am I present? Um, Being coachable is such a big part of being a successful leader. And if you won't let the person whom you're supposed to be closest to in your life speak to you in a way as a coach, then it's probably unlikely you'll let anybody else speak to you. Or if you do, it's always through a a veiled um, kind of protective shield. Because if you can't get vulnerable in front of a coach, you really can't come to terms with the reality and sometimes how ugly the reality is of your situation. And, and it's that confrontation of the ugliness that you don't like that motivates you to make the changes. So the one place that I know that I can, that I can be as, as vulnerable as possible, the person who knows me the best is with my wife. So if my wife can speak and, and she can, if she goes out on that limb to say something, to call something to my attention and I'm willing to get vulnerable then it's no surprise that I'm also able you know, later in the month to sit with my business coach and listen to what he has to say and be vulnerable with him in the same way and not have this air of defensiveness or you know, false receptivity that keeps me from seeing just how ugly the situation is. And what I miss out on when I put up that barrier, when I put up that shield to keep from being vulnerable, what I miss out on is the motivation to change that is created by seeing a situation for exactly how it is, but to be coachable, you you have to be vulnerable in that way. So I would just encourage you, uh, if you want to be a great leader, there's so many things you can do at the office. There's so many things that you can do in your industry. There's so many boards you can serve on. There's so many employees that you could mentor. But if you really want to get better, if you really want to take your leadership game to the next level, start at home first. If you can do it there, I guarantee you can do it anywhere. Thanks. We'll see you next week.